This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, it's another fun one. We've, we have John Cordier, who is the co-founder and CEO of Epistemics which is a simulation and synthetic data software company that uses an approach called agent-based modeling. Can't wait to learn more. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Less excited to be on. Now, I've been told that kind of what you do, kind of think of it as a combination of SimCity, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and The Matrix, all kind of globbed up into one. Is that fair? Is that... Uh, I think that's fair. So depending on who the listener is, whichever one of those three they gravitate towards most, um, I, I think we can okay. draw a line to to all three. Uh, okay. You know, probably something that we can we can jump into. Uh, if, if you had to, you know, as you've gotten to learn more about epistemics, I don't know if you have one of those three flavors that you would bucket us into more or less. You know, I'm uh, yeah, I I got to tell you I'm more of a sci-fi nerd, so Matrix isn't even an, is extreme enough for me. For me it's more like Ender's Game or maybe Blade Runner, I don't I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's the uh the Glass Bead game, which is a um a book in the um trilogy series. So, yeah. All, all, right. all things simulation, that's that's what we're up to. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, I'd like to begin uh this 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 the story of simulation with with you, with your origin. Uh, where, where are you from? Take us back. Uh, where, where'd you grow up and what, what kind of led you eventually to, uh, to this, this founder's journey? Yeah. Uh, I think related to what we're doing. So there's like a big geospatial component to it. Uh, and that's been my life. So I was born in Tampa, Florida, uh, from there moved to Hawaii, then St. Louis, then Erie, Pennsylvania. And we share that in common, but I would be spending my summers wherever my dad was at in the world. So, uh, Arizona, DC, Germany, a uh, bunch of other places in between. So, uh, quite the world traveler. <laughs> whether it was my decision or not, that was that was the destiny. So, um, yeah, I. Uh, but yeah, I did call Erie, Pennsylvania home. Uh, went to University of Pittsburgh for college. Uh, I ended up you know, pretty much making my decision to say there needs to be an undergraduate neuroscience program and a good D one soccer program, and that's pretty much narrowed my search down to like 10 schools. Um, and Pitt ended up giving me uh, the best deal and best opportunity. So I uh, did one degree in neuroscience, another in sociology. And uh, after that, it took me a while to figure out that public health is actually the the center point of both of those things. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I found my way back in Pittsburgh after working for a bit in doing Teach for America, I was between a PhD in cognitive neuroscience to then do education policy or use the neuroscience sociology to do more social determinant of health type work. So hmm. uh, what led me back to the University of Pittsburgh was uh, I kind of do these like tests on myself uh, to say like, like how, how bad do I really like want all, it? all good neuroscientists. Yeah. I'm yeah I, do, I, right? <laughs> I just finished reading Live Wired, by the way. Okay. One of my new favorite books. Uh, and so I'm starting to nerd out a little bit about neuroscience as well in the present. But yeah, Sure, sure. So my, my test was, if I can't read a book a week in the same subject, why would I go back to graduate school in it? Why would I try to pursue a career? Uh, ideally, would save some money and save some time. So I <clears throat> kind of found myself at the intersection of uh, 
public health within the social determinants framework, innovation and behavior economics, social dynamics. And I was like, okay, how, how do those things come together? And I'm in my first year of graduate school. Um, I'm doing this. Uh, I was in a school of public health in health policy and management. And you would do these, uh, they call them residencies. And my uh, residency was helping manage two hospitals in the UPMC system. And I realized like, okay, I'm kind of the chief of staff here. I get to look at the hospital presidents, the chief of uh, like the chief of uh, quality, uh, chief medical officer always says, I'm like, like, this still just doesn't seem like we're improving the health of the population. Like it, it just isn't, uh, I'm not, not scratching that. the itch just not, yet. Not no. scratching the itch just yet. So I, I actually went to my, um, my department chair and said, Hey, look, like I've, I don't think this is for me. Like I came back, you know, I came to a school of public health to change the way public health could be practiced and find a better way to do this from a social determinants perspective. And I, I don't see it in what, what I'm getting into right now. Uh, three weeks later, I find myself in the Dean's office and I'm like, Oh, uh-oh, what's, what's going on. Uh, but it was actually for an opportunity to start working with Don Burke, who ends up being my co-founder of epistemics. He was the Dean of the school, uh, previously led all of infectious disease research for the military, then at Hopkins, and uh, it was his time in D.C. where he met our other co-founder, John Greffenstead, and they both kind of taught, John taught Don mathematical modeling and computation, Don taught John public health and sort of biological systems. And they started working together uh, in the early 2000s, and we ended up, you know, over time, they, they got to building this simulation engine uh, that was called Fred, named after Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Went with the whole idea that if you... It's not an acronym? It's not an... You we, think it'd be... It's a backronym. It's like, all right, we're, we're, we're naming uh, this after okay. Fred Rogers. Uh, so how do we <laughs> how do we, how do we we fit something epidemiological around Fred? There you go. I knew uh, there was so, something. So so they had the E, and then they just had to figure out, all right, what's the, sure. the R, E, and the D? Um, so the framework for reconstructing epidemic dynamics. And uh, that's something that is, you know, we still carry forward with epistemics in the name of the programming language that we created. But um, you know, the, the cool thing about what we what we get to do in sort of the founder journey is, you know, I've, I found myself in the simulation world, which simulation is all about making better decisions. So that kind of ties in the behavioral economic side of things, um, decision making, system science side as well. Uh, there's a geospatial component to what we do. So from my childhood background and fascination of maps and you know kind of seeing the world through a geospatial lens that that taps into what we get to do. And, you know, it definitely scratches the public health, you know, make an impact on the, on the world itch because the types of people that we work with are those that have an ability to make decisions and have influence where they can say, all right, this set of decisions is going to lead to a new set of outcomes for people. And uh, ideally those outcomes are moving more towards improving health of populations, improving socioeconomic mobility, those types of things. Um, or, you know, what, what are the products that, you know, this company or organization is trying to sell and what impact would those have on, on people? So yeah, a uh, long way of saying, you know, I've been able to combine all things that I'm interested in, uh, in epistemics and feel very fortunate that, uh, you know, been the CEO and founder for the last five years. Incredible. And just, just, just to add the final kind of exclamation point on the intro story, this is found in the Rockies. I assume uh, you're somewhere in the Rockies now. You're n no longer in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a great town. My dad grew up just north of Pittsburgh, but where are mm -hmm. you? Uh, 
So I'm based in Salt Lake City normally. Uh, today I'm doing this podcast from Phoenix. Very cool. Hey, double check, double check yeah. on the Rockies. Yeah. Great. Well, that's what we call. That's kind of in our region. We we call the whole corridor. The you know anyway. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of mm-hmm. Arizona people on the show. So yeah, cool. Uh, very cool. Um, I want to go back. I, there's a lot to unpeel, um, but I, I before I do, I want to go back to, you know, for our founders that are listening to the show today, it sounds like you had this intense curiosity and this passion that was finally unlocked by what I would call like a serendipitous moment with meeting Don Burke and this opportunity, right? And then getting connected with with John, you know, the three of you kind of, mm-hmm. you know, stirring stirring this this pot. Uh, do you think that's necessary for like, like a necessary event for a founder? Like, do, do, do you have to have that sort of serendipitous moment or like for you, it's an important part of your journey, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that that was important, but I don't think it is for everybody. Uh, I think, you know, as founders, like you have to have something that you know is driving you that's beyond, you know, wealth creation or finance type stuff. Like there has to be a, I'm doing this work for this purpose. And you have to be able to like dig deep into what that is. Um, but no, I, I don't think you have to have some magical serendipitous moment uh, to become a founder. Um, in some ways, I think you could even like reverse engineer the even type of company you want to build. Um, you'd say, okay, I'm you know trying to build a company with recurring revenue that has sales cycles of this long and this size or number. And you know, here's some of the things that I'm interested in, or you know, the, this is where my network lies. Where's the opportunity there? So I think there's a number of different ways you can come to found a company or the reasons why somebody might do it. Um, I don't think you have to have this like eureka aha. Sure. you know, discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm glad you said it. I'm, I'm glad you, fr- you phrased it that way. Cause you know, I think a lot of times people question it or they think that that is a necessary ingredient, but many founder stories, some founder stories have it, some don't. Uh, I mm-hmm. like the way you framed it. Um, so let's, I want to talk before we dive into your platform, what you're doing and kind of the story of your company. Um, let's take a step back and talk a little bit about simulation. I remember taking my first uh, uh, mathematical modeling course. It was like discrete dynamical systems and mathematical modeling. That was the first time I like did a predator prey model. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you start to think about the basic, some of the basic stuff out there, the basic constructs, what you're doing is very advanced type of modeling and simulation. What, can you just walk us through like baby steps through like, why is this important? How is this different from predicting things how is this different than ai just for a generic kind of a, a, you know explanation to our listeners we'd love to love to hear yeah that. yeah so let, let's take it from the perspective of uh more classical predictive analytics contrasted to simulation so a lot of times you think predictive analytics you start with the data set and you're trying to pick up some trend within that data set to help you make a decision about the future and Inherently, if you're just looking at a data set that's about the past, you're going to get really good about understanding the past. And the assumption there is if the future looks like the past, we have a pretty good understanding of what's going to happen. And that's how a lot of companies, that's how a lot of governments make decisions. And, and that gets you, you know, pretty close to, to actuality. Um, where you use simulation, both in our world, which is more like decision science, behavior science with populations, or simulation in uh, product design, even design of cars, and I'll well, you know, go to example there, 
even the golf balls that you're, you know, might pick up at uh, the pro shop that are made by Nike or somebody else, like all of those products go through simulations before they get put into production. And instead of just predicting, here's what's going to happen, you end up saying, here's a model of how this system behaves. And now we're going to make a change. And if we understand that system, we should be able to understand this feature trajectory or what that change is going to impact. So uh, like the the dimples on a golf ball, you know, those have been designed to you know, get your extra six feet or whatever it is on a drive because like the depth and everything based on the physics of that golf ball being hit with a certain force at a certain angle under certain wind conditions or mm-hmm. moisture conditions in the air, it's going to behave a certain way. And so you can test right. those things out when you understand all those different uh, parts of the system. Uh, so the cool thing about where, where we sit and where simulation can can kind of be brought to new industries that have just been focused on predictive analytics and looking backwards. Now that there's so much data, you can get a better sense of what's the behavior and build a model around that and then say, okay, but if the behavior changes a little bit, what else might change? And uh, that's kind of what gets to the book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point, where mm-hmm. a little a small change in you know everybody's behavior could lead to really big macro-sized outcomes. So the butterfly effect. In in some sense, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which for our listeners that don't know it, if a it basically says if a butterfly flaps its wings in China, it causes, I forget, like some major hurricane, hurricane in the mm-hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean or something, right? Like yeah. the cascading effects of of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. okay, so I I get this. I'll, 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 I'm I'm following. I'm following you. Um well, but what what's the limit? I mean, like the fact that uh like like you're modeling a behavior like with humans, right? So like the fact that I wake up every day at pretty much on the dot at about six o'clock, like, well, what happens if I sleep in one day? What happens if I have a late night? It seems like human behavior is so erratic. How can you actually, mm-hmm. how can you start to simulate behaviors? Because that's what you're doing, right? Yeah, that, that's in a sense what we're doing. Uh, so what we try to give people the ability to do is say, here's a starting point. So you know, every day when you're running a simulation and, and what we do, you know, the, each person's represented as an agent, agents have households, agents get up and they go and start interacting with one another. And that could be kids going to school, they interact with their schoolmates, they then come home, they spend a certain number of hours in each of these locations, there's interactions that happen there. Um, there's also behaviors that happen online and in like a digital space that we're all connected with. So um, the way that you can kind of construct a simulation is Maybe there was something that came out in the news at 6 a.m. that you usually would see, but you slept in until late that day and you didn't see it. So now you don't have that information until later on. Like, you know, you go about your day the same way that you would do every day, but, you know, something something happened and you probably should have made a different, just different decision. Um, <clears throat> what, what we do is we try to give people a good starting point. So, you know, the mm-hmm. every little day, every little daily behavior interaction uh, it's going to be slightly different, but on the average, when you're running a simulation of everybody in an entire city, you know, it, you kind of get the same more or less pattern uh, of life on any mm-hmm. given day. So what we end up looking at are what are changes that might be longer lasting change or uh, a quick change that creates a, a tipping point. And that's what people are really looking at when they're running simulations with with us. Where do we get to a tipping point? What are the conditions that we can create that lead us to a tipping point? Um, and so when I use the word condition, you could think, well, the conditions might be 
we need this government policy to come into place and we need this marketing strategy and here's our go-to-market. And with all of those perfect, you know, the perfect storm creates the conditions for us to have this product take off and we'll do really well. Or, uh, you know, looking at longer term health conditions, which is something that I've been interested in. How do you intervene in diabetes or how do you intervene in cardiovascular disease with entire populations? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you kind of have this trajectory that people are on. And then what we enable people to do is say, well, let's test some interventions. And you know, a lot of these decisions, like they're going to impact somebody's life. And so being able to test those in a synthetic population, running a simulation, you know, that's a safer way of doing that than saying, all right, we think this is going to work, you know, finger to the wind and yeah, like directionally we're going to, you know, we know this is right. It's like, okay, like until it's really it, wrong. And then we're like, okay, wait, 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 let's, let's yeah. Yeah. Until, uh, until let's it's start, really right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Until it's really wrong. We've like, already hit a tipping point. Yeah. Or yeah. it's like, darn, like we've spent a lot of money trying to make this thing work and it's just not, not changing. You yeah. Know? So it's like there, there's a whole resource allocation side of things too. So, um, I, I can, yeah, I can fun. think, I mean, e- even in recent memory, we think back, I mean, probably COVID is, is a, is a time when there was a lot of, a lot of effort and a lot of politicized opinion and a lot of medical opinion and, should we do, should we wear a mask? Should we do this? Should we stay inside? Should we go outside? Should we? And it's like, what is actually going to going mm-hmm. to move the needle? And we didn't, well, we didn't know. We kind of knew we figured it out, but it was like, would that, that would be like a situation where you could use a tool like this, right? I mean, to help make better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And then the the fun part about that example that you use is it's the human behavior that really drives the outcomes. Sure. So that's like, you know, what is the attitude? What is the sentiment towards taking an action? You know, the lack of that action also has a consequence. Those types of things are all, um, all like, you know, simulation friendly questions that, that you can ask. So, all right, I'm starting to get this vision of what it is. And now it's, now it's sounding more like Sim City to me. Like I picture mm-hmm. people and, you know, so like, okay, I, I get that analogy. Mm-hmm. What, but, but describe, so there's this, there's a, there's a behavioral layer. There's a geospatial layer. Imagine there's like a temporal layer. Is there, what else is sort of baked into the platform that allows you to build these, these simulations and these predictive models? So we have the, the base synthetic population. So every person, every household, every school, every workplace within each of those locations, there's contact patterns that people interact with. So in schools, you know, we, we had kids where, RFID tags around for you know years and said, oh, like here's the social contact pattern of oh, wow. a first grade classroom versus a sixth grade versus a high school one. So you get to kind of see all these different nodes of interaction that would happen. Uh, wow. So that's all that's all like a depth of proprietary data that you have because of some of the research background mm-hmm. of the company. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's and that's just baked in, ready to go out of the box for mm-hmm. people. And then you could say, oh, all right, like, you know, we're we're gonna change our class schedules up in the schools. And so here's how those interactions might be a little bit different. But again, we're giving people a starting point and then we enable them to really think about like, what's the cool thing that we're trying to project forward? So then there's the- Is it it sort mm -hmm. of like you have some initial parameters and then you can adjust those based on, is is that that right? There's like parameters inside of this population model you can adjust? Yeah, you can adjust it. And so, um, and we kind of have this background model that we're, we're always improving called ages and stages. So- you don't have to think about, oh, like I need to write in when somebody turns you know, 18 and they're still in school, 
they're only going to be in school for one more year, then like, where are they going to go from there? You know, some mm-hmm. are going to go to college, some are going to work. Like, like we, we take care of all of that. If there's you know, bigger macro trends, you can adjust that totally, totally on your own. Um, but then the, the next layer is like, what's going on with inside, you know, the information network around each individual. So where are these individuals getting their information from? Um, is this information congruent with their belief system or not? Is that going to change their attitude towards something? And then you can really look at, um, you know, what, what things might change an attitude, which then changes a behavior. And then what consequence does that behavior change have on some outcome that matters to that business? Uh, and a lot of times, you know, in, in healthcare and in pharma, uh, pharmacies, they're looking at is what's the incidence of this condition going to be over time in what location and what resources are then most important to get to those locations. So you could think, uh, drug utilization or drug adherence, you know, you're trying to say, all right, when the, what happens when Ozempic, a new drug comes on, you know, to a new use case of the market, that's going to shake up a lot of things. But it it shakes up more than just drugs in that category. Like there's a conversation with a really big retailer in our country that's trying to figure out, okay, if more people are taking Ozempic, how many are we going to sell more or less bags of potato chips? And what like types of things like are also going to be impacted by this? Wow! Uh, like the conference sure. I'm at right the conference I'm at right now, this guy he uh, did a really big firm. What they um, they're in the dialysis space and they're like, yeah, this Ozempic thing, our stock went way down because they're like, oh no, people are going to be healthier. There's therefore less dialysis. Therefore, like our investors are getting a little, little shaky, you know? Th- so it's like yes. these unintended consequences getting back to kind of your, your butterfly effect thing. But yeah. the, uh, yeah, the fun thing about it is being able to see that the decisions we make and the way that the population, um, like the way that we all interact together, like we're, we're all connected in some way, shape or perform. And that, that's a pretty cool thing to, uh, to help other people to think that way. Amazing. Yeah. So it's, this sounds like an extremely developed kind of fully functioned featured platform that you have. If you're able to do this level of, of sort of granularity and, 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 you know, different, different attributes for, for your population and, and the geospatial piece, uh, as well. What, uh, Tell us about that timeline. Like what, when did this begin and when did you sort of eventually, you know, launch? How did you fund it? Like what was, what was some of the details around your, your founding story? Yeah. So prior to me getting involved, uh, there was Gates Foundation money, NIH money, CDC money that went into fund this, this research group called MIDAS. Uh, Mm. MIDAS stands for the Modeling Infectious Disease Agent Study. And right now, Midas is probably a, a group of over 800 researchers all around the world that are trying to build models to understand the impact of emerging infectious diseases. And they're doing this from a mathematical modeling perspective. And the brilliance of my two co-founders was instead of saying, we're going to focus on like a specific disease and build a you know really in-depth model of this disease, they said, we're going to build a platform that enables the future of all disease modelers to like have a shared data set, same framework, same tools. We can all communicate with one another and actually have an understanding of what the heck's going on. And uh, the work for for building our, up our platform started, I think, in about 2004. And then 2004 till uh, H1N1, there was like, like, we'll call it like proto-epistemics type technologies that were built. Some of those proto-epistemics technologies were used by... Uh, 
Neil Ferguson in the UK to you know, kind of really say, hey, COVID is going to be a big challenge. Uh, then there's this development period where we went from, uh, we've now licensed this technology out. So this would be 2019. So let's say 15 or so years of research within the University of Pittsburgh and across these academic research centers. We licensed that technology out into epistemics. We then raised angel money. We raised a little bit of venture capital. And uh, that got us to a point where we were able to go from the entire technology stack was simulation engine, synthetic population, and building models, all coding in C++. And we're like, Ooh. well, we know that that's not a scalable type of a technology. <laughs> yeah. And so we went from there to say, okay, we need to start uncoupling these things yep. to enable agent-based simulation and modeling to become more and more accessible uh, more to the world. Grade. Yeah, absolutely. And so we then uncoupled the synthetic population and then we like coded. What a and, refactor. Holy yeah. cow. And then we ended up, well, I mean, th this is even, even beyond that. Um, our co-founder, John Greffenstedt said, hey, I'm going to create a simulation specific programming language built for synthetic populations. And so that's why like, not? A, yeah, why not? You know, when, when you can do it and, yeah. um, you know, yeah, so, so John's absolutely brilliant. And that was uh, a major thing that, uh, you know, we worked on for probably a couple of years. And now yeah. we actually have the system set up where the simulation engine still C, mainly C++, so like really performant synthetic population, modern database. So we can plug in with, oh, hey, like you're on Snowflake. Great. We're on Snowflake. You can add your data right into the mm. synthetic population, you know, build more in-depth models, go for it. Uh, oh, you've run these bunch of surveys. You want to ingest those into the synthetic population. Go ahead. So that you know, number of things happening at that layer. And then on the model building side, what we realized is you know, the invention of this simulation specific programming language it's really good for people that are new to programming or new to trying to build simulations, but there's a huge body of people that are already fluent in Python or NetLogo or already use some other simulation packages. And so we're now at a point where it's like, hey, if you know these, like if you know how to build your models in NetLogo, in Mesa, in AgentPy, whatever it is, just plug that on top of our synthetic population you get this really robust data set, you get all the compute behind you, and here you go. And that's something that um, you know, we anticipate gets us many more users and many more use cases and you know, creates this bridge from simulation being like a you know, couple geeks in the back to like, oh no, like this is actually driving strategy of our company because of the realism of this synthetic population and yep. the different scenarios we can run. Yeah. It's it's incredible. I mean, is there is there an, an any analogy or a precedent in a different industry, maybe in in the software industry, that's that you could compare this to, like this undertaking and what you're doing to really create uh, a, a category, like a table stakes analytics category for the future of of uh, business intelligence or or yeah, you know, like what anything anything come to mind as like a similar similarity? So I think it's sort of a, in a natural progression. So one of the progressions I would use is the ability to you know, have more computing enabled this industry of big ah. data to emerge. And with, you know, without, you know, increases in computing power, like big data probably was not going to become a thing. But now that you have both of those, then right. you were able to get the AI machine learning side of things. Um, 
I think in some ways we could go back 40 or so years when Jack Dangerman tried to say, you know what? People need to figure out that space and place matter and build Esri to, you know, yes. the billions of dollars a year that they make in the geospatial side. And it's great one. Now, it's great now it's like every, you know, every geospatial program school you go to in the world, you learn their software, uh, yep. helps people see, get better situation awareness. Um, that's one. But it's also like, you know, they, they built that like kind of new industry around maps and yep. geospatial paper, database. Paper. And, Prior to that, yeah. it was paper. Yeah. Yeah. Paper and protractors. Paper and protractors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've used, I've used Esri uh, and it's, yeah, it seems like it's, it's still like from that era mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, that it was created. Like it, 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 but it's powerful. It's great. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just such a gorilla. Like they don't need to make it beautiful or sexy or modern. Cause it's just, I mean, it's somewhat modern, but it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think that's the challenge that even machine learning and AI have had, right? Like, you know, there've been machine learning and AI solutions for 30, 40 years, but how do you make it more accessible, more approachable, more simple? So like, you know, these are all, um, yeah, I think that's the challenge that you know, any any company, any group of people that are doing like a deep tech, like newer thing, how do you make it approachable uh, you know, to the next set of users? And that's that's another kind of quest that we're on right now. Yeah, super exciting. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some of the specific sort of business use cases. But before I do, I just want to say, I've certainly seen the power of agent-based modeling. We're not going to talk about it on this episode because I don't want to go to jail, uh, uh, but I've seen it do some pretty powerful things for the government and uh, and and do some really great things for our, our men and women who were who have you know been deployed. Um, what what are some of the cool? So there's I definitely am aware of some defense and military applications of this type of approach. Mm-hmm. What are some of the applicate more of the business applications that your company that epistemics is exploring and that you've had success in? So uh, in, in healthcare and insurance, so one of the big challenges is mm. how do we make big bets on improving diabetes for an entire population? What are the interventions that might might work out? You haven't tried these out before. You know, chief population health officers, chief actuaries, they're getting pinged with, hey, there's 50 new diabetes management programs that we have to figure out which one of these is actually going to have an impact. Mm-hmm. And that's like a really consistent solid use case for us. So in that case, it's here's a forecast of diabetes, the background dynamics interactions that individuals would take that lead you to go from being pre-diabetic to diabetic and then progressing. Um, and then we're able to say, let's start testing interventions to see how that changes that trajectory for those those individuals. Uh, that That's one example. Uh, another totally outside of healthcare, and uh, we're, we're starting to explore this right now, is on the marketing analytics side. So uh, you can think this, this notion of well, disease epidemics, re- excuse me, respiratory disease epidemics. They're those things that go viral, and mm-hmm. you know, from a virology perspective. But you know, people are trying to have their products go viral. Information goes viral. It's being able uh, to run those types yeah. of simulations to assess. What is the right? What are the right conditions to enable this product to get adopted? Or let's run a forecast to figure out like what are the challenges of a product getting adopted or not. Um, there was a really big 
technology platform at the 2021 Consumer Electronics Show that everybody was going to you know, take up and it was going to be the next big thing. And we ran some simulations back in the spring right after that. And we're like, we pretty much forecasted within a couple of weeks of when this, you know, supposedly going to be the next big social media platform ended up hitting their tipping point and tanking a bit. Um, we sent that tanked report. Just a bit. The tanking a bit. Tank, tanked a bit. Yeah. And that report got sent over to uh, a VC fund that had invested in that company. And it was like, yep, yeah, like, cool. Thanks for sending it. We're, we're good. And then it's like, uh-oh, we start seeing that line. <laughs> looks looks like that tipping point is a lot more real than, uh, you know, what they had perhaps, taken it for. Perhaps once they listen to the episode, they'll, they'll, they'll fumble through and reread your report. Maybe, and, maybe. And then, and then come and want to invest. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, what do you, what do you think, uh, what is really your vision and mission and and sort of passion at this juncture of the company? And how does that relate to sort of where you see the future of simulation and software going? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's changed that much from when we founded the company. There's like a little bit different flavor of how we get there. But from the b- very beginning, it was we're going to enable this technology to exist to change the way that public health can be practiced all over the world. And uh, right now, I think the the vision for what that looks like in the future. So I have a, an advisor. Uh, he actually worked with the person who built the game SimCity, and he ended up working in the financial services space. And he's like, the, you know, the best marketing that you could ever have is when you own a metric. So Moody's, S and P, Morningstar, it's like they put out these reports. They own the metrics. They own the data that goes into them. They own the models that lead to those metrics. And I think the big vision for how public health is practice and how we can check the the healthcare, the socioeconomic well-being box is owning the metric on sort of the health of a society or the health of a population by geography. Um, so let's say we we generate that metric. We have mm-hmm. models that sync up from individual behaviors to decisions at the school level, the workplace level, the government level. And we enable any single person to say, hey, here's my idea of how this policy you know, if we put it into place, it might lead to more upward social mobility for people that look like me. Or, you know what, like, uh, here's something we could put into place and it's going to, you know, somewhat bring up the bottom part to shrink the wealth gap in the country, or it's going to lead to more people being able to purchase their first home before the age of 40 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And giving you know, basically everyday people the ability to have their real world version of SimCity and test, here's my idea, here's my strategy. And ultimately, I think that's what leads to more people saying, okay, I can trust this data. I can understand that my decision and these policies have an impact on things beyond just my local you know, perspective. And I think that's something that could be really powerful for, for people all over the world. Hmm. Perhaps we're already in that simulation. No, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> that everyday person uh yeah anyway uh that's cool that's a cool vision and 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 well well said well articulated um one of the things i know you you're really big about is uh empathy in in data science and you know empathy in the decision in decision making through data uh very non-quant of you but but tell us about that that philosophy um, and, and why you think it's important and why what you're doing is kind of right on that 
right on the, that sweet spot? Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you asked that question. So a lot of times you might look at a data set and you see this data and you see this numbers. Whereas when you're running simulations on a synthetic population, like it's, you're like, oh my God, like this agent could be an actual person and here are outcomes that happened with, with this individual. So I think the way that you can use data to tell better stories, I think that's something that we connect with and storytelling leads to human connection. If you can have more connection and if you can see that, oh, my decision has this impact on these people, you have more of a connection there. Um, so I think overall, this idea of empathetic leadership where it's like, okay, I have to make a tough call and maybe this policy is going to end up impacting a certain segment of demographics in the population. Uh, it's going to like lead to less resources going to one geography or another. I mean, those are really tough decisions that people have to make, but you know, just like on the day to day, um, I think being able to see the data as it's connected to a person, not it's something in a spreadsheet. I think that's the, mm -hmm. Uh, data to empathy connection that using a synthetic population uh, brings to life. I mean, to yeah. the point, like even in COVID, like one of the cool things that happened is you're running these simulations and you look back and say, okay, like what's the infection network? And we were able to pull out stories from the simulation that was like this, uh, and it's like we started this in Seattle. So like King County, where like there was a, um, one of the um, first spots where COVID really started taking off. It was like this high school student infected their classmate that classmate worked at a nursing home that individual that like classmate that worked at a nursing home ended up infecting a person who lived in the nursing home who ended up infecting a person who works in the nursing home who ended up infecting another person who lives there and that other person that lives there two months later ends up passing away and it's like those are stories that are real yeah, yeah. and it's like totally. we're able to see that when running these simulations out and it's like holy cow like you know we do a Right now, or at the time, uh, we did not do a good enough job on visualizing that. Um, but like, those are very important stories to be able to tell with data. That's right. I, I never thought of it that way. That was a, that's a great way of describing it because essentially what you have is a real story, but in the data, that would just be an isolate. That would just be some like anomaly that you would never, it may be noise even. If you're trying to look at like all the data, it's like, oh, somebody at a nursing home died while they were elderly. Well, it's imagine like, no, this, right? There's a criterion that connects all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or if you look at a bar chart, it's like, okay, I don't have any visceral reaction to a bar chart. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people might and like, you know, great, great for them. But, yeah. you know, I look at, you know, if I look at a bar chart that comes off of our data set, it's like, I know that every single, like every single pigment of color there is actually representing a person yeah. you know, or an agent in the simulation that is in effect, representing a person. So it, it, it makes it a, a bit more real uh, when you can right. start seeing data that way. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Um, what I want to, I want to uh, kind of go to uh, some more, some questions on the more personal side, uh, kind of as we wrap up today. Yeah. Um, I know you're the co-founder of, uh, is it Common Good AI? Is that? That's, is that's that one right? of the things that yep, yep, working on. With a yep. bunch of AI leaders from MIT, Harvard, CMU, Berkeley, and then townhall.ai. Is that, that was, right? That's another that, That's out? one of the things that came off of the the common good AI group. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what is what is this stuff? And what's your motivation to 
I mean, it sounds like you've got enough on your plate as it is, but why do some of this, you know, why, why jump in the deep end of some of these other initiatives? So, uh, for me personally, like these are things right now that are, um, you know, background to epistemics, but very much related. And, uh, this all comes from an introduction to this guy, John Clippinger, uh, this past March. So, uh, absolutely brilliant, brilliant person. He connected me with this guy, uh, Tom Keller and Tom, uh, he's a co-founder, CEO of this company called, um, excuse me, not just co-founder and CTO, excuse me, of a company called CrowdSmart. And what they're doing is complementary to simulation. So what they go and do is figure out how does this group of people think and learn and make decisions together? And like, what is the sentiment or what are the best ideas from a group? And the cool thing about that is you can use this collective intelligence to say, all right, here are five best ideas from, you know, this town, this community of how we can improve from within. And then Mm -hmm. we layer that on to some simulations and say, oh, well, ideas one, two, and four were actually really good, but three and five, like we don't want to do that because that had some really bad unintended consequences. So, um, you know, I I look at these, you know, kind of side initiatives that I've gotten pulled into from some other um, founders to say, yeah, like there's ways that our technologies can be very complementary to one another, and let's uh, let's find some ways to work together. The cool use case that it actually just launched through the um, CrowdSmart platform, Town Hall AI initiative through the Common Good AI group, uh, is in Saint Saul Marie, Michigan, and what they're doing, like knowing that there's a uh, a big election coming up in 2024, they're trying to get an understanding of like, what are some of the issues that matter most in that community and open up the platform to let the community participate to say, here's the issues that matter most to us. Um, and sort of using this crowd smart approach to crowdsource the best ideas. And then ultimately that can get turned into simulations that we provide. And the business model there is actually enabling local newspapers and, um, like local news stations that have like more content to connect more with their communities increases like a revenue stream for them. Uh, yeah, I'd say this is, th- those are all uh, projects with other passionate founders who want to make an impact. And yeah, it's fun. Sounds like a great crew. <laughs> Good group. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I have uh, two more questions. The first one uh, is, is about teach for America. Um, I'm just curious you, you know, what that experience, how that, how that developed you as a person and as a, as a founder. Um, I know you spent, you spent two years in service. Um, I just love to hear about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So what got me interested in teaching America in the first place, one of my good friends, Kate Malikoff, she was uh pit senior of the year, a year or two ahead of me. And she was kind of like a person took me under her wing in, in college. So I was like, all right, like if that's cool enough for Kate to do, like I'll look into it. I'm considering this PhD in cognitive neuroscience to get into that, uh, get into education policy. So what I learned from it is like, I was able to see and then better articulate the social determinants of health in action. And you might say, oh, well, like education is the path to a better future. Education is one condition on the path to a possible better future. But I mean, there are people that don't go to college that they have great upward social mobility the education factor wasn't wasn't there for them, but there were other conditions that enabled them to like have, you know, great opportunity or whatever. Um, my time in San Antonio, I think was really uh, 
it was important for me to see and it, was, it drew me back into this sort of what what is my passion what am i you know what do i drive more purpose in and i, I do think it's something in the public health side the uh the funny thing about it is i'm working in a school district where uh, the high school, middle school, and elementary school are in the same building. That building two years prior was a Kmart. And I lived, I opted to live in like in that community. So I lived next door to the school um, in the apartment building behind the auto zone that overlooked like the the schoolyard. So I tried to immerse myself to really try to understand what are the social dynamics going on. And at the same time, I was coaching soccer at uh, one of the local universities three miles down the road. So I was, you know, in the inner city school coaching soccer there, but then I coached a club soccer team in the north of San Antonio, which is basically uh, where a lot of the privilege in, you know, that that city would be. Then I was coaching kids in the club side that were the same age as the kids in my high school class. And like at, at the core, same levels of talent, like no, no smarter than the other, but just like the difference in opportunity that the kids saw in themselves and then we you know that they felt in their um, home environments, like that's the social determinants of health in action. And mm-hmm. uh, so I was really fired up when I was going back to graduate school to, you know, do something or you know, try to do something that would help the the kids from that school district that I was teaching and see that, you know what, there's an opportunity, you know, I can do whatever I want to do. Just got to try. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And, and what, what incredible perspective that, that, that I'm sure that all those experiences have, have given you. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so for the last question, I have the strangest final question of any episode, any of our 50 plus episodes ever. And if you'll humor me, mm-hmm. it's kind of a little bit of a stunt because uh, we're kicking off. Here we are. We're kicking off 2024. Mm-hmm. And I want to make a point and drive it home this year for everybody. Uh, how did we meet? So... We met through uh, an event in Park City, uh, yep. I think it was last September, and we went on for months, not knowing that we grew up a mile and a half apart, uh, went to the same middle school, probably you know, had some of the same teachers and everything, 10 years apart, I think, 10 or 11 years apart, yep. Yep. and then uh, actually had... Actually, I know exactly it was 12 years, exactly 12 years. Exactly 12 years. And I'll, I'll finish the story, maybe. All right. I'm gonna, go ahead. Continue. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to, you, you feel anything that I miss. Yeah. Uh, so after going to the same middle school, we both, you know, similar uh, situation, ended up going to the same high school and shared uh, probably one of the most important people in our lives, uh, the mentor and this, the woman, Mrs. Mullen, who uh, yeah, lived directly across the street from me, drove me to school. And uh, by the way, the reason I studied math, ended up studying math in college, the reason why I got into everything professionally that I'm involved in. Yep. That single point, that single agent, if you will, in our lives, that 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 big agent of change for (laughs) young men of cathedral prep in Erie, Pennsylvania. That's uh, Mrs. Joanne Mullen. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we, we find that out. Uh. I think at breakfast or you know, maybe breakfast after, I mean, we probably had how many, I don't know, multiple meetings yeah. and yeah. interactions, different events. Mm-hmm. And, and then to, to put the cherry on top of the story, I come to find out that my mother had you in her preschool class in religious education mm-hmm. at our, 
Our Lady of Peace. And it just so happens that I was the assistant in that class. So technically, technically. I met you when you were five, five years old. Yeah. <laughs> four, yeah. four and a half, yeah. five. Which is crazy in this world to think about. And so the so what of that goofy ending to this amazing episode. By the way, you've been a phenomenal guest. But I want to encourage everybody in the new mm-hmm. year, get out there and get to know people, who they are, where they came from. And, you know, it's kind of a fun theme related to the whole simulation thing, right? Because when you get to know somebody and you interact at that level, mm-hmm. who knows the multiplicative effects it can have on the rest of your network and, you know, the people people in your life. Yeah, uh, without it, abs- absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, the, the cool thing about it was, uh, you know, I would go on to our high school podcast and then you know, chatting with you about it and you're driving to the airport and you're like, oh, like, I, I want to do that. It's like, cool. Made the connection. You do it. And I'm listening to yours. And I'm like, hang on a second. Like, Les's story. I'm like, yeah, that that's kind of my path and my path and my path. And like, holy cow, like, you know, here we are talking startups and venture capital in the Rockies. So, yep. Well, John, yeah. uh, once again, I want to thank you so much as, as a friend and as a, as a founder, I've really grown to respect and admire in our ecosystem. Thanks for sharing your story today. To conclude, why don't you just tell our audience a little bit more about where they can find you and Epistemics online? Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple different ways to find us online, LinkedIn or our website. People can sign up, start building their own models, run their own simulations, see if they also have a similar change agent in their trajectory that we might we might have shared back in the day. Um, yeah, epistemics.com would be the, the spot to go. Thanks, Les. Thanks. Thanks, John. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.